I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, AC here. A few months ago, Doc Project senior producer Jennifer Warren. Say hi, Jen. Greetings. Jen started talking about this guy. She's never met him, but they're in the same Facebook group. His name is Leonard, Leonard Wilson. Um, hi, Leonard. Uh, he lives out on a farm uh, near near where I grew up. So he, he lives in Perry Sound, Ontario. I grew up in Muskoka. And um, I found myself really looking forward to his updates. Whenever I see one of his updates on this page, I just get this boost of joy. Sometimes Jan will forward one of Leonard's posts to the rest of the team. And I get it. They have this vibe. Like cowboy haikus, only less structured. Like, imagine you just go for a walk with Bob Ross. Oh, nice. And he's kind of like, those paintings he sees in his head, he's like describing them to you and it's his life. That's kind of the effect. Okay, read me one of Leonard's posts, a Leonard post that you like a lot. Yeah, this is a fairly recent one. Um, So Leonard lives by a river. He says, I like to sit on the shore and watch the ice float by. Today I met a river otter. The otter chuckled as he rolled over and over in the water. He disappeared under the ice. So soothing. Like, it'll just be like that. Like, I, um, here's another one. This is the road we walk every day, once in the morning and again at night. We've had so much rain. I'm not worried. My bed by the fire is high and dry. Oh, yeah, that's cozy. Yeah, there's like some thoughtful, like, zen situations going on. He has this kind of wry sense of humor sometimes. The thing is, Jen is not the only person who seems to get a lot out of Leonard's Facebook updates. He is by no means your traditional influencer. Like, he's an older guy. He lives on a farm. But online, he just seems to capture people's hearts. People like me? Um, who just love these updates. Hundreds of likes and loves and those like laughing, crying emojis um, and uh, comments that kind of go like this. Love Leonard and his stories. It's always a good day when it's Leonard time. Always happy to hear from Leonard. Oh, Leonard. I always look forward to hearing from you. We love hearing about Leonard's day. And definitely the most frequent comment, Good boy, Leonard. Such a good boy. Good boy, Leonard. Because Leonard is a dog. Yeah, I'm addicted to Facebook updates by a dog. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. If you have never heard a radio documentary from the perspective of a 150-ish pound dog before, well, today is your lucky day. We've got two stories today coming up. You know the big nickel in Sudbury, Ontario? Or maybe the world's largest fiddle in Sydney, Nova Scotia? Or, mm-hmm, my personal favorite, the giant Canada goose in Wawa? Doc Project producer Tanera McLean lives in Alberta. And by her unofficial count, Alberta takes the proverbial giant cake with more than 100 of these big things. 
And Tanera, well, she's got some questions. Does the giant pierogi with a fork sticking through it in Glendon, Alberta, speak to a deeper artistic meaning? Or what about that giant skunk in Bicycle, Alberta? Or even the giant sausage in Mundare, the one that has, um, well, raised a few eyebrows over the years? That is coming up. But first, Leonard Wilson. This is the story of an old dog who got a second chance. Jen, after months of Facebook fangirling, reached out to Leonard's family to get to know him. His eyes are almost like human eyes, and he sits and he looks right into your eyes. It, it, he, he just, I don't know, there's something very, what's the word? Oh, special is the word. <laughs> yeah, like, something, like he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to teach you something. I'm Dave Wilson, and I'm Leonard's dad. Hi, I'm Maureen Wilson, and I'm Leonard's mom. <laughs> Can I ask you to tell me the story of um, how you adopted Leonard? How we adopted him? Yeah, like what, when, how did it start? What's the story? You know, when we lost our other dog, we were really, you know, it's like a hole in your life when you lose an animal like that. The dog, the boxer died, and we waited, what, a year? Mm -hmm. About a year. So then we applied to shelter dogs, and... We had several interviews on the phone, which I have to say did not go well, because they want you to have a fenced-in backyard and live in the suburbs, and we just don't. So then I mentioned it to Georgian Animal Hospital, the Tammy there, and she connected me with uh, Brenda at uh, Carter's Forever Rescue. And then, of course, we had to fill out more forms. Every Every shelter made you fill out a whole bunch of forms, which we did. And pretty soon you get a call, and it was Brenda. She said, okay, I think we've got a dog for you. And we said, okay, what is he? And she says, well, he's not here yet. He's coming from Tennessee. So my name is Brenda, and I'm founder of Carter's Forever Rescue and Sanctuary. Um, We're located in Bracebridge, Ontario. As a rescue... We pull animals from all over the place. We we pull from China and we pull from the States. And out of the States, we pull from Tipton Paws and Claws, which is a high-kill shelter down in Tennessee. Um, the ladies came across Leonard, and they were quite concerned because he was a large breed dog. Leonard is very large. So they were just concerned because he was found as a stray, that he his chances of making it were almost next to nil. So they they brought him to my attention when I asked if if I would bring him up with a couple of the other dogs. So Leonard Leonard uh, was when the polar vortex went down to Tennessee. It was minus fifty three, 
which is very, you know, unusually cold. And the rescuers were going out and they were trying to rescue the dogs and cats to stop them from freezing to death. And Leonard, with his big thick coat, he was just living in the middle of a garbage dump. So they rescued him and they brought him into the shelter. The ladies there, I've dealt with them for years and they know I have a soft spot for the old ones. Because we don't really know how old he is. Guess it, guess he may be 11, maybe, but we don't really know. So when Leonard came in, they they knew his chances of, of getting out of there would be almost next to nil, and they knew that I, I loved the seniors. So getting him out of there became uh, a priority, and we started to make arrangements to, to get him out of there. So I guess from the shelter, Leonard got put on a train. The train uh, went up to the border, and there was problems at the border because they said, Leonard's too big, nobody's going to want a dog this big. I got in touch with the transporter right away and virtually begged them to please, please go and get him. To send him through, so they sent him through. And then in Toronto again, they decided that he was too big and no one was going to want him. So they were going to euthanize him. And of course, Brenda, being Brenda, stepped on the gas and got somebody down there to get him right away. So he arrived at the Carter's rescue. It it took a little bit, but we got him up here and, and he was as good as gold. We all fell in love with him. He was... He was just a big doofus. So we get the call, like, the next day, okay, he's here, and we're like, oh, okay, and you have to come and get him tomorrow morning. So we were there at 7.30 in the morning, and I said to Brenda, well, what if he doesn't like us? Because we'd never met this dog before, and she said, oh, no, he's going to love you. So that weekend, they came to visit with Leonard, She brought him out, and we looked at him, and I thought, that is the exact dog that I was trying to describe. You know, when I wanted a bigger than a wolf, he's bigger than a big wolf. He's got a thick, heavy coat, and he just basically looked at us, didn't he? And and we had the truck door, back door open. He just looked at us and like, oh, this must be my truck, and jumped in. (laughs) Leonard hopped in their truck. And they looked at me, and they fell in love with him. And in the rescue world, it was just a done deal. So he came here and been here ever since. He he went home with Dave and Maureen and never looked back. Brenda said, this is Leonard. So... (laughs) (laughs) We never thought of him as anything. And I guess he's just Leonard. His name was always Leonard, and it just seemed to suit him. Even when he came, we just didn't have the heart to change his name. We, We just left it. He was just a Leonard. Soon after, I think it was only a matter of a couple of weeks, and 
we we had started to to get Leonard updates. June twenty fifth, two thousand nineteen. Leonard here. Wanted to touch base and let you know I'm feeling so relaxed and this is my home. Dad and I have our work to do. We've got baby chickens now. Those little babies run all over. I've learned to gently nudge them back into their area. I'm a busy guy. I love to go in the truck. Mom wishes I could talk so I could tell her about my past life. Just checking in. All is good. It was written as though Leonard was talking. We couldn't help but laugh. It was amazing. It's absolutely just amazing. January 18th, 2021. Hi guys, it's me, Leonard. Just checking in to say hi. Guess what? I've figured out how to get on Mom's lap. He wants to be a lap dog. But he's a bit big for a lap dog. He, he tries to get up, so he balances on the ottoman and puts his head on my lap. But even that, his paws are like bigger than a St. Bernard's paws. His paws are huge. He is a very big animal. He weighs 146 pounds. He's, when people see him, they think he's a black bear. When you first meet Leonard, you probably wouldn't chance going by him. He, he really has a heart of gold, and he's a sweetheart, but like I said, he's a very large dog. Hi, it's me, Leonard. Hope everyone is staying warm. This is my cat. Mom said she was wild when I found her in the woods. That little cat had been here two years in the woods, and we tried everything in our power to catch that cat, and we just could not catch it. And then that one day, Leonard, you know, he just, he'll sidle up to you and kind of push you along if he wants you to go somewhere or see something that you're not getting. And he sees it. October 18th, 2020. This little cat lived in the woods. One day, I took Dad to show him where the little cat was. It was cold and rainy, and the cat was crying. And finally we followed him and there was the cat and, and the, a branch or something had fallen on it. But it was so tired from trying to get out that Dave just reached down and picked the cat up. And now that's Torty. Guess what? Now I have a new friend. She is doing really well now. I make sure she comes inside every night. It's too cold out there. She's black and white like Leonard, so she's hangs around with them. It's like Leonard's shadow, you know, and sometimes he'll look at me and say, She is pretty annoying. Everywhere I go, she has to go too. At first, she even slept on my bed. My bed. So she'll be sleeping right in the middle of it. He'll just go and he'll, he doesn't move her. He just goes and lies on the floor. Yeah, he just leaves her on the great big bed and she's a little tiny cat. Now she has her own bed but I still have to share my rug with her. You know, just to be, like, he's he's such an amazing animal. To do that, I mean, it's that's a cat that he found in the woods. Stay warm, Leonard. It was very, very thin when he found her. But now, of course, like everything else around here, it's overweight. <laughs> November 28th, 2020. It's me, Leonard. I'm still on my diet. 
Mom left these cookies out. Kitty told me she's trying to figure out how to get them out of this container for me. But Mom caught us. Too bad. No cookies for Leonard. December 7th, 2020. Tonight, I have a stomach ache. Dad opened a new bag of food for me. He went for a nap and I helped myself. People feed him, and then my other neighbors feed him too. I know, they say they don't, but I don't believe it. <laughs> because he keeps going there. And why would he go there? He's going there because they fed him. Because he really, he's ravenous and all the time, and he's fed properly. Well, he's fed better than properly. And the vet said that that, because he's part lab, and lab are just like that. Like he gets pear, fresh pears, which he doesn't prefer, but fresh apples. He gets broccoli trees and he gets cooked squash or carrots because that is what the vet said he should have in addition to the dry kibble. So he's being, he's, don't, I don't want people to think he's not being fed. He's being fed. <laughs> Let's head to the barn, Len. March 18th, 2020. Leonard, come. I've spent a lot of time working with the chickens. I herd them into their coop at night and watch out and keep them safe all day. I let Dad know if I sense a fox, weasel, eagle, or a coyote. Dad says I do a very good job. Before we got Leonard, we lost a lot of chickens to wild animals. Since Leonard got on the job, we haven't lost any. Today, it has been so busy. Everyone is coming for eggs. I'm exhausted keeping a lookout and watching people too. I think the chickens really like me. Now they want to have a nap with me. Such is my life. December 25th, 2020. Merry Christmas to everyone. It's snowing really hard. I've just come back from checking the homestead. He loves to go for the walk in the morning and um, I take him all the way down to the uh, farm property at the end of the road and we go all the way up to the Herdville Road. What a good boy, good boy Len. You may wonder why I'm standing in the water. This is the road we walk every day, once in the morning and again at night. We've had so much rain. Even when it's wet, we still have to walk our perimeter. We look around, we look for birds and, and all the animals. He's very interested when a deer goes across or the moose goes down the road. He's on their trail. Mainly they're looking for predators, they're looking for wolves, coyotes, bear, of course, foxes, anything that would be a predator of chickens. Dad checks for new predator prints. I just keep my nose in the air. Dad says I'm a great homestead dog, the best dog he's ever seen at sniffing out danger. And then we go up for the mail midday and then uh, again... You know, I'll take him down at night or in early afternoon before for his supper at five, and uh, and we'll we'll do the same thing, walk the road, and see what's happening um, 
you know, what animals have gone across. July 17th, 2020. I found some trouble on my walk today. Dad and I were just walking along enjoying the early morning. From out of nowhere, that skunk appeared. Yeah, um, that was on the walk. I panic and I go, no, no, no. Now he, and he doesn't respond to that. When, when you want him to come to you, you, you say this way, this way, Leonard, this way. I took to a chase. I almost got it. I heard Dad yelling, Leonard, stop. But I panicked and I said, no, no, no. Well, he went right up to the, <laughs> to the skunk and he got it right in the face. It was too late. I got sprayed right in the face. When we got home, Mom cleaned my eyes. That felt a lot better. We washed them off in the lake. We put the uh, tomato juice on them. She mixed up something in the red bucket. Dad worked it into my fur. Then I went swimming. We didn't have it, it didn't work. So well, we, it, it helped. It, it helped, really helped, but we had to take them over to Paula Day Inn for a coconut shampoo. <laughs> Because they have the special equipment where they can put him on and they, he steps onto this thing and they, you know, pump it, pump the foot thing and he goes up and then they can, I guess the sides him. come up and they can wash him. But the man that owns that place, he said, uh, I'm not even sure that thing's going to rise with Leonard on it, but it did, <laughs> it did work. And he had a coconut shampoo and smelled lovely. It was all blow-dried and really fluffy. The smell was gone. I'm all better now. I hate skunks. May 12th, 2020. Leonard time. It is a very good thing I'm here. The mini-human is here. She's getting a brother. I don't know what that means, but I know me and Mom and Dad need to keep her. The mini-human, Juliet, <laughs> is six. <laughs> Juliet's mama had a baby about three days after they announced COVID. Going in the car, and Dave drives down with Leonard while Leonard picks her up, <laughs> and they drive back up, and it gives Mom a little rest, you know, a big rest, I guess. I'm I'm a little reluctant to give her back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I'll have to. <laughs> I'm busy taking care of her. She runs faster than a chicken. I like her a lot. Well, at first, he did. He tried to herd her into the barn oh. with the chickens. Leonard, come. And so of course, then he then the look on his face when he you could just see what he's thinking, like what. What do you mean it doesn't go in the barn? Come on, you know, let's go. The, all the other chickens are in there. I don't know if you don't look like a chicken, but you must go in here. I don't know where else you go. And he also, of course, liked the idea of when she ate, ate things, she would give him, if she didn't really wasn't crazy about it, it would, Leonard would get, where did that go, Juliet? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Leonard would be there with a big smile on his face. <laughs> July 12, 2019. I've learned a lot about homestead life. I'm an expert chicken herder now. These mini-humans that show up here, they really confuse me. I tried to herd them, but apparently they don't go in the barn. 
I knew I had to be gentle with them because Mom was really happy when they came to visit. Anyway, I just wanted to check in and tell you I'm cool with the little humans. And guess what this one said to me? I love you, Leonard. I'm a happy boy. I decided to write it from Leonard's perspective because he's so, what's the word when you're so expressive, you know, you're so expressive in the face and he, he's so expressive that he communicates so well what he wants and what he's thinking about what's happening. So I guess that's why I started writing and, and just to say hello for Leonard to say hello to all the people that had helped him along the way. And now it just has become a regular occurrence that usually once a month or at the at the latest, once every couple of months, we, we get some of the most heartwarming stories that you ever want to read. If we don't get them every, every little bit, I start to get uh, messages asking where where the Leonard updates are. <laughs> People are constantly commenting. People will say, oh, Leonard, you're a naughty boy. Oh, Leonard, how dear you are. Oh, Leonard, what a wonderful story this week. Love Leonard and his stories. It's always a good day when it's Leonard time. Always happy to hear from Leonard. Leonard, you are pure love. You make our hearts smile. Heart emoji. Oh, Leonard, you are a knight in shining fur. Such a good boy. Good boy, Leonard. Good boy, Leonard. Fan club, yeah. Fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing that he's a rescue dog and the way they write those stories looking through his eyes is is why people find it so endearing. We see and know where the possibilities of his life might have gone. So when we see what people are saying and how they're saying it and and just reading them, it's funny. It is so funny, and it's so wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So there's a group in China, apparently, too, that read those, or were reading those, and they, Brenda said, they, if I don't write one for a while, they'll contact her and say, what, where's the Leonard update? Where's the Leonard time? So, <laughs> yeah, so, just, so I, I don't know, I just think it's there. fun. I, yeah. I just think it, it's certainly for for me who's you know you're kind of stuck at home and and through this covid time it's it's fun to write things that are fun and make people happy and see people respond in a happy way leonard was just one of those those last minute decisions that i made to to throw him in with the two dogs that were coming up because he was breaking my heart and he probably wouldn't have been there the next time. And that was the start of, of his travels and his adventures. He's just turned into such an amazing gem when I think of what, what could have happened with Leonard and what is happening with Leonard. You know, here's a dog they were three times they were going to euthanize. 
and look at the joy he's brought to us. You know, he's he's just, he's got the heart we all need. I'm the most loved dog in the world. My past life seems like a long time ago. I just wanted to say if you're human and you're thinking of adopting a dog, go for it. It's good to give somebody like me a chance. Bye for now. Gotta go open up the barn with Dad. He needs my help. Leonard That piece was produced by Jennifer Warren and edited by me, A.C. Rowe. The voice of Leonard was read by long-suffering Doc Project producer Kent Hoffman. If you missed the beginning of today's episode and want to go back and hear the whole thing, or maybe share it with a dog lover in your life, you can find the full audio of this story on our website, where you can also see photos of all 148 pounds of Leonard. You can find all of that at cbc.ca slash docproject. Or perhaps dog project. Uh-huh. We were all thinking it. Coming up, we head west to meet the giants of the prairies. From CBC Podcasts and the Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you were asked to design an emblem for a town that calls itself the bean capital of Western Canada, what would it look like? Here's the brief for that design. Must represent a small town of about 2,000 people, has to appeal to children and adults alike, must be easily associated with the town, and it must be eye-catching, dare I say, a little shocking, but also friendly. Someone came up with the idea of of, um, a mascot uh, named Pinto McBean. Pinto McBean, a mascot of a bean. They gave him a cowboy hat and he's got a six-shooter in a holster and and, uh, a bit, bit cartoonish. That's Gordon Reynolds, the mayor of Bow Island. Bow Island is not, in fact, an island at all. It's a small town in southern Alberta, that grows a lot of beans and is home to Pinto McBean. Pinto is a beige pinto bean. He wears an orange cowboy hat with matching orange gloves and a kerchief round his neck. His gun is strapped on with a lime green holster. But the thing about Pinto McBean is that he's not just any old town mascot. Sure, you'll find him on t-shirts and stickers and keychains, but you'll also find him looming over the highway. Pinto McBean is a statue. 
standing nearly two stories high. Around 1991, 92, someone designed an, uh, a statue, basically. And uh, so Pinto McBean was born around then, and uh, he uh, was, was also uh, set up on the highway right next to the visitor center, and uh, it's quite eye-catching. But the story gets weirder than that, because Pinto McBean is not alone. Doc Project producer Tanera McLean lives in Alberta, just a few hours' drive from Pinto, and she'll take it from here. Bull Island Mayor Gordon Reynolds says these kinds of huge attractions are strategic. Those visitors are stopping in your community. They're spending some time. Hopefully they're spending spending some money, and those outside dollars are, are huge. To attract those huge dollars, small towns build huge icons. Because here's the thing. Pinto McBean is not the first big thing to be built in Bow Island. They actually have six, including... Number one, a 30-foot sunflower in full bloom. Two, a larger-than-life buffalo statue that looks over the town from atop a huge weather vane. Three, the world's largest putter at the entrance of the golf course. It's 30 feet tall. And they even put a spin on their water tower. They took and um, built handles on the side of it and painted it brown to look like a, a classic ceramic bean pot. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, very recognizable as, as to what it might be, and it's uh, visible from a long ways away. He's right. Driving along the highway into Bow Island, the water tower does look like a bean pot. Just a big old bean pot in the sky. I think you can overdo it. And, and although we do have a number of big things here at Bow Island, I don't think we've overdone it. Pinto McBean has become an icon of sorts. The town takes the title of bean capital of Western Canada seriously and doesn't mind having a bit of fun with it either. In my town, uh, well, I love Pinto McBean. Um, you know, some people, uh, is interesting when, when he was constructed, some people thought it was maybe a little silly. And, but I think most people, you know, embraced it right away and thought it was a, a great idea. Uh, I don't think he was controversial by any means, not, not, not like some of the uh, public art that you hear of in, in some of the cities, but uh, I think he's been well-received by the community at the outset and over the years. This idea of big roadside attractions is common across the country. There's a giant peach in Penticton, B.C. that also does double duty as an ice cream hut. A huge metal coffee pot in Davidson, Saskatchewan, pouring invisible coffee into a giant cup. Deer Lake, Newfoundland is home to an eight-foot strawberry. There are hundreds of these big things in Canada, but the prairies do seem to have a lot of them. So many, actually, that the Kubasonics, a Ukrainian-Canadian speed folk band, wrote a song about it. Giants of the prairies rising in the sky. Giants of the prairies designed to catch your eye. They may not be the sort of thing you fancy or you dig, but one look at it and you'll admit that thing is really big. And Alberta is especially known for its big things. In this province, we have more than 100 of these huge objects from what I can count. And 
it's not just a small town phenomenon. Immense mode is a gigantic set of legs made of brick that is 20 feet tall and sits on a platform of a transit station in Edmonton. And it is big enough for you to sit on its front of its toe and stand a monk so as if you were standing next to a giant. My name is Don Dedarando, and I'm the co-owner of Voyager Art. I'm Brian MacArthur, and I'm also a co-owner with Voyager Art. Don and Brian are the creators of Immense Mode, that giant set of brick legs that Don was talking about. Imagine your Jack from the fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, imagine the giant standing next to you while you wait at a bus stop. But the giant in this case is just two 20-foot-high legs cut off just before the knees. The pair of legs, they, are, they have a giant pair of striped black and white socks that is kind of textured in a knitted pattern that kind of uh, swirls up on the form. And the shoes are kind of a patent leather, clog-like, comfortable, relaxed pair of shoes, but they're kind of stylish. And then they have glass mosaic of um, colorful flowers that are decorating all over the form, as if it's a, um embroidered decoration on the leather, patent leather shoes. Just over 20 feet tall, 12 feet in depth from like heel to toe. The legs are about four, five feet across at the calf. So it's quite kind of muscular leg. We had, I think, about 20 pallets of bricks. And then we stacked them up in kind of a Lego-like shape. Don and Brian won a commission through the city of Edmonton to make it. It was kind of an homage to the traveler who needed to uh, go back and forth to work. This big thing was commissioned as a piece of public art, and it didn't go over quite as smoothly in Edmonton as Mr. Pinto did in Bow Island. Oh, I remember one, um, I think it was related to some of the criticism and the Taxpayers Association. They thought it was inspired by Ronald McDonald because of the shoes and the striped socks. They said, yeah, we just ripped it off a Ronald McDonald billboard in Vancouver or something, and it's like... Wow, I, I never had made that connection. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of crazy. But Yeah, there was also some discussions about Pippi Longstockings as well. You must be a fan of Pippi Longstockings. No, no. <laughs> Even though Brian and Don are artists, not everyone was convinced their giant legs were art. And what about all of those other big things scattered across the province, like Pinto McBean? Aren't they art? Taking Pinto, for example, it's uh, somebody's uh, representation of uh, a caricature you know, based around a bean, of all things. And, uh, you know, they put a hat and a uh, kerchief on him and you know, he wears a holster. So, yeah, in its own way, it, it, I think it is art. It's, it's, it's you know, what, what can be referred to as public art. Um, again, because it, it, it tells a story, it represents something. I think some of them could be considered art, but not necessarily all of them. But it's all in the eye of the beholder as well, you know? There's a whole craftsmanship aspect, you know, how well was it made? It, does it articulate 
the um, essence of it. Does the giant pierogi with a fork sticking through it in Glendon, Alberta, speak to a deeper artistic meaning? Or what about that giant skunk in Bicycle, Alberta? Or even the giant sausage in Mundare, the one that has, um, well, raised a few eyebrows over the years since it was <clears throat> erected back in 2001. Yeah, I feel that some, you know, some of those objects are made just to be point blank. This is the pierogi. This is the sausage. And this piece for immense mode is not just a pair of legs. In our eyes, it it connects more to that specific area. It was made specifically for that specific area. And the people who use that ETS platform and the people who shop at the Southgate Mall, I don't want to take away from those other sculptures saying that they're not as meaningful. It's just that perhaps they weren't made with the same kind of um, context Whereas, you know, our piece um, was made for this particular area, not necessarily for the whole town, being famous for something very specific like the Mundare sausage or, yeah, or the Pasanka, which is a total amazing piece. That Pasanka she's talking about? It's in Vegreville, Alberta, population 5,861 as of last year. In Vegreville, Alberta, there's a giant Pasanka. It's the biggest Easter egg that anybody ever saw. If you don't know, pasanka is the traditional Ukrainian word for a decorated Easter egg. The one in Vegreville is world famous. It looks like a 5,000-pound Fabergé egg made of silver, onyx, and gold-colored metal floating 30 feet in the air. It kind of looks like an embroidered egg-shaped spaceship, which is fitting because the X-Files had a nod to the egg in season six. the same thing that you are. I've been trying to hack my way into that system, but I can't seem to make it past the password protect. You think you can get access from here? I need to find that password. In this scene, Special Agent Fox Mulder is trying to hack into somebody's desktop computer. They only have one chance to guess the password, so it's an intense moment. As it turns out, a snow globe on the desk beside the computer provides the key. The globe has a bright blue background, and in the center, a shiny egg rests on a plinth. Mulder picks up the globe, reads the only word written on the white base, and he cracks the password. Beggarville. Morin. I saw this clip not long ago in sheer surprise and delight. This big egg was famous enough to be a plot device on this show. It makes you realize how these big things can put a place on the map, regardless of whether they are fine art or not. The Vegreville Pasanka is now immortalized on an X-Files episode. It all makes me wonder, why? There are a lot of ways to have a roadside attraction to bring in an extra buck, and there are a lot of different ways to go about public art. So why, of all of the options, big things? Yeah, 
It's an interesting one. I, we, we, honestly, we, the National Trust hasn't had a huge focus on these objects, but I know that they're becoming of more and more interest. And uh, we have had a, a, a few a magazine articles. We put out a national magazine and we've had a few articles on them. This is Chris Weep. He's the manager of Heritage and Policy Relations for the National Trust in Ottawa. I think these kind of objects are actually, they, 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 become, they, they, they start off in one place in terms of announcing, you know, a place's presence. But I think they also become a kind of an iconic representation of a place uh, and a community. Chris has an interesting perspective on the topic of big things in his role at the National Trust. He's originally from Alberta, so he gets the fascination with these objects. The pierogi on a fork up in Glendon was an interesting one I saw, and we drove up there uh, with a number of other friends who were from uh, other parts of the country. And <clears throat> it was really interesting because, like, Glendon itself, the, the pierogi on a fork was fascinating, uh, but uh, the actually the town itself is really quite remarkable in terms of its, you know, vernacular architecture and uh, other 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 things to see there. So the pierogi on a fork, I have it actually on a, on a, on a cup, and I still continue to use it for my, my breakfast coffee till today. Chris is able to give me some insight into why people started creating these big things last century. They started in the U.S. predominantly in the 1920s um, in California and along Route 66 uh, as uh, as a kind of the birth of that car culture. And you needed to have big, kind of flashy, um, eye-catching objects to to catch people as they're moving at speed down the highway and to try to get them to stop at your stop in your areas. But as for why big things are so prevalent in the Canadian prairies, Chris has thoughts there too. In Canada, it's actually, it's interesting because I was trying to think of uh, places outside of the prairies, and there are some, uh, you know, the Big Fiddle in Sydney, Nova Scotia, um, or the Big Nickel in Sudbury in Ontario. But I mean, it's a really fascinatingly prairie phenomenon where it seems like the prairie provinces have really taken it on uh, in a big way. And um, I, I, I think there must be some kind of connection to um, that desire to sort of, you know, uh, announce yourself on that on the landscape. And I think it's interesting, a lot of these structures were created in the 70s, 80s, 90s, around the time that grain elevators um, were, were disappearing. So it's just a theory of mine. But I think, you know, it, maybe it was in some way uh, anxiety created around that kind of moment in history when that, uh, you know, those large structures that really announced the name and the presence of a town uh, were being uh, lost in a lot of prairie uh, and Western Canadian uh, communities. And, you know, the, this was, you know, the, the creation of a large object, like, a, I don't know, the sausage in Mundare or the egg in Vegreville or, or something like that, was a way to, you know, uh, announce the presence of a place. Maybe if civilization comes to an end, people in the future will find these big things and think we used to worship them. Kind of like the Easter Island heads or Stonehenge. The National Trust is really uh, there to um, kind of oversee and provide a, a unified voice around kind of heritage discussions in Canada uh, and to advocate for places when they're um, at risk of being uh, destroyed and uh, to try to push for, I guess, processes and incentives that can help uh, save these places when they're in trouble. And I know that, you know, the National Trust in the United States has actually taken up a real interest in protecting some of these places because they've become such iconic structures. So which ones, if any, 
should be considered part of Canadian heritage, therefore something that needs to be protected. You know, it's, it's interesting, the focus of the heritage conservation community has really expanded in the recent uh, decades. I think at first, in the 1960s and 70s, people were really looking at buildings of high architectural merit and places with conventional historical connections. And I think that's really changed over the, over the last number of decades in terms of really recognizing, you know, the places that, are, uh, that resonate with communities. And so I think these kind of oddball, eccentric, kind of quirky uh, objects, we're going to be seeing more of them come up for discussion in terms of whether they should be preserved and uh, how they should be preserved and who should do it. But when we're speaking of preserving big objects, whose heritage do these big things represent anyway? I think uh, last summer I went to see, um, I actually went to the town of Andrew uh, not to see what was there, um, I was actually at Métis Crossing, which is really, really close to Andrew. Um, and I guess uh, they have the world's largest mallard duck. So that was kind of fascinating to you know, drive into this small town and to see this massive duck. Um, my name is Amber Paquette, and I am a Métis and Cree multidisciplinary artist and the Historian Laureate for the City of Edmonton. During Amber's trip to Andrew, she was kind of scratching her head that a giant mallard duck was the prominent feature considering the town's history. The town is named after its founder, Andrew Whitford, who was Métis. I don't know if mallard ducks are particularly, you know, in high quantity over at Andrew or why they chose a mallard duck. But, you know, overall, you're just kind of like, huh, why is this here? I looked into it. And a mallard was chosen in Andrew because the area is a wetland and breeding ground for mallards. But I thought it was interesting because Andrew is just kind of one of the many towns of Alberta that have uh, Métis roots as a Métis settlement. Um, I guess the area that I was in, you know, it's a very much a traditional land for us as Métis people. Um, that when you kind of just go into this town, you're like, well, that's interesting. What's that doing there? That's kind of random. Giant animals, huge Easter eggs, large fruits and vegetables. On the surface, these huge attractions are indeed whimsical and fun. But the question is, whose history is being told and preserved? Looking through the various lists of big things in Canada, it's clear whose perspective they're from. The pierogi is in Glendon, a small village initially settled by an American who was a European settler. And the giant Begreville Pasenka was built to pay homage to Ukrainian settlers east of Edmonton and in a roundabout way pay homage to the 100-year anniversary of the RCMP. There's a giant cowboy boot, giant survey markers, a giant coronation crown. When you scan the big thing skyline, it's clear who's been making them. European settlers staking their claim on the land and the culture. Indigenous representation is slim. We do have the world's tallest teepee and medicine hat. Um, and we have the world's largest beaver at Beaver Lodge. Um, you know, but I don't know if these things were made to necessarily honor or acknowledge or recognize Indigenous history. As an artist, 
Amber has created her own massive work of art, a 20-foot mural installation which is on display in Edmonton. It's not strictly one of Alberta's big things, but then again, who's making the rules? It's quite a large piece. Um, it is um, called Miawak, which means in a good place. There's kind of like a river that runs through all four panels, and it really kind of just ties in this piece into like a beautiful loop. Ice Age glaciers and mammoth and um, you know, First Nations, you know, going across the waterways in their canoes. And this beautiful uh, indigenous man who's on his medicine wheel and he's consulting the stars. The second panel kind of moves into, you know, the fur trade and that kind of first time of contact. And then that kind of transitions into the third panel, which is a really quite a change where you see um, kind of the colonial period and the introduction of the RCMP and the ways of life changing. But in that panel, um, people are still practicing ceremonies and they're kind of joined together in a round dance. And that round dance continues on into the fourth panel, which is kind of the present day where we're all living today uh, on Treaty 6. this blind spot around who the big things of Alberta speak to, it's something Chris Weeb from the National Trust acknowledges. There's really a need for all stories and more narratives about those places to be told. Um, and I think we're seeing that with the real desire to tell uh, Indigenous stories of place and other groups that may, whose voices may not have been recognized or may have been actively excluded from those processes in the past. It would be really beautiful to see a, a large statue recreating a, a First Nations um, story or a myth, you know, because um, we have so many of them and a lot of them incorporate animals. So there's no reason why these monuments can't be art um, with a little bit more deeper meaning. Uh, so I kind of think that that's where, for me personally, the, the line between art and just creating something for the sake of creating is kind of drawn. Could you imagine a set of steel gray moons spiraling on rods up into the air to represent the 13 moons of the Cree, Mohawk, and Ojibwe calendars? Or a trickster coyote in mid-stride dashing across a patch of prairie grassland? The fun and whimsy of it all is why these big things are successful as attractions. It's good for the communities that have them. It brings people in, it causes people to ask questions, and, you know, if it gives people a laugh or a smile on their face, I think that it's definitely done its job. That doc was produced by Tanera McLean. It was edited by Allison Cook. And featuring this song, Giants of the Prairies, by the Cuba Sonics. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.